Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far. Read to you by Pratham Dad. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Read to you by Pratham Dad. Part 1. England under Richard II. Richard, son of the Black Prince, a boy 11 years of age, succeeded to the crown under the title of King Richard II. The whole English nation was ready to admire him for the sake of his brave father. As to the lords and ladies about the court, they declared him to be the most beautiful, the wisest and the best, even of princes whom the lords and ladies about the court generally declared to be the most beautiful, the wisest and the best of mankind. To flatter a poor boy in this base manner was not a very likely way to develop whatever good was in him, and it brought him to anything but a good or happy end. The Duke of Lancaster, the young king's uncle, commonly called John of Gaunt, from having born in Ghent, which the common people so pronounced, was supposed to have some thoughts of the throne himself. But as he was not popular, and the memory of the Black Prince was, he submitted to his nephew. The war with France being still unsettled, the government of England wanted money to provide for the expenses that might arise out of it. Accordingly, a certain tax, called the poll tax, which had originated in the last reign, was ordered to be levied on the people. This was a tax on every person in the kingdom, male and female, above the age of fourteen, of three groats, or three four penny pieces a year. Clergymen were charged more, and only beggars were exempt. I have no need to repeat that the common people of England had long been suffering under great oppression. They were still the mere slaves of the lords of the land on which they lived, and were on most occasions harshly and unjustly treated. But they had begun by this time to think very seriously of not bearing quite so much, and probably were emboldened by that French insurrection I mentioned in the last chapter. The people of Essex rose against the poll tax, and being severely handled by the government officials, killed some of them. At this very time, one of the tax collectors, going his rounds from house to house, at Dartford and Kent, came to the cottage of one Vart, a tiller by trade, and claimed the tax upon his daughter. Her mother who was at home, declared that she was under the age of 14. Upon that, the collector, as other collectors had already done in different parts of England, behaved in a savage way and brutally insulted Wat Tyler's daughter. The daughter screamed and the mother screamed. 
but the tiler, who was at work not far off, ran to the spot and did what any honest father under such provocation might have done, struck the collector dead at a blow. Instantly, the people of that town uprose as one man. They made Wat Tyler the leader and joined with the people of Essex who were in arms under a priest called Jack Straw. They took out of prison another priest named John Ball and gathering in numbers as they went along advanced in a great confused army of poor men to Blackheath. It is said that they wanted to abolish all the property and to declare all men equal. I do not think this was very likely, but they stopped the travellers on the roads and made them swear to be true to King Richard and the people. Nor were they all disposed to injure those who had done them no harm, merely because they were of high station. For the king's mother who had to pass through their camp at Blackheath on her way to her young son, lying for safety in the Tower of London, had merely to kiss a few dirty-faced, rough-bearded men who were noisily fond of royalty and so got away in perfect safety. Next day, the whole mass marched on to London Bridge. There was a drawbridge in the middle, which William Walworth, the mayor, caused to be raised to prevent their coming into the city. But they soon terrified the citizens into lowering it again and spread themselves with greater uproar over the streets. They broke open the prisons, they burned the papers in Lambeth Palace, they destroyed the Duke of Lancaster's palace, the Savoy in the Strand, said to be the most beautiful and splendid in England. They set fire to the books and documents in the temple and made a great riot. Many of these outrages were committed in drunkenness, since those citizens who had well-filled cellars were only too glad to throw them open to save the rest of their property, but even the drunken rioters were very careful to steal nothing. They were so angry with one man who was seen to take a silver cup at the Savoy Palace and put it in his breast that they drowned him in the river, cup and all. The young king had been taken out to treat with them before they committed these excesses, but he and the people about him were so frightened by the riotous shouts that they got back to the tower in the best way they could. This made the insurgents bolder, so they went on rioting away, striking off the heads of those who did not, at a moment's notice, declare for King Richard and the people, and killing as many of the unpopular persons whom they supposed to be their enemies as they could by any means lay hold of. In this manner, they passed one very violent day, and then proclamation was made that the king would meet them at Mile End and grant their requests. The rioters went to Mile End, 
to the number of sixty thousand. And the king met them there, and to the king they arrived, but neither they nor their children, nor any coming after them, should be made slaves any more. Secondly, that the rent of land should be fixed at a certain price in money, instead of being paid in service. Thirdly, that they should have liberty to buy and sell in all markets and public places, like other free men. Fourthly, that they should be pardoned for past of. Heaven knows. There was nothing very unreasonable in these proposals. The young king deceitfully pretended to think so, and kept thirty clerks up all night writing out a charter accordingly. Now, what Tyler himself wanted more than this, he wanted the entire abolition of the forest laws. He was not at Mile End with the rest, but while that meeting was being held, broke into the Tower of London and slew the Archbishop and the Treasurer, for whose heads the people had cried out loudly the day before. He and his men even thrust their swords into the bed of the Princess of Wales while the Princess was in it to make certain that none of their enemies were concealed there. So, Watt and his men still continued armed and rode about the city. Next morning, the king with a small train of some sixty gentlemen, among whom was Walworth the mayor, rode into Smithfield and saw Watt and his people at a little distance says what to his men. There is the king. I will go speak with him and tell him what we want. Straight away, what rode up to him and began to talk. King, says what, dost thou see all my men there? Ah, says the king. Why? Because, says what, they're all at my command, and have sworn to do whatever I bid them. Some declared afterwards that as Watt said this, he laid his hand on the king's bridle. Others declared that he was seen to play with his own dagger. I think myself that he just spoke to the king like a rough, angry man as he was, and did nothing more. At any rate, he was expecting no attack and preparing for no resistance when Walworth the mayor did the not very valiant deed of drawing a short sword and stabbing him in the throat. He dropped from his horse and one of the king's people speedily finished him. So fell Watt Tyler. Fawners and flatterers made a mighty triumph of it, and sent up a cry which will occasionally find an echo to this day. But Watt was a hard-working man who had suffered much, and had been foully outraged, and it is 
probable that he was a man of a much higher nature and a much braver spirit than any of the parasites who exulted then or have exulted since over his defeat. Seeing what done, his men immediately bent their bows to avenge his fall. If the young king had not had presence of mind at that dangerous moment, both he and the mare to boot might have followed Tyler pretty fast. But the king, riding up to the crowd, cried out that Tyler was a traitor and that he would be their leader. They were so taken by surprise that they set up a great shouting and followed the boy until he was met in Islington by a large body of soldiers. The end of this rising was the then usual end. As soon as the king found himself safe, he unsaid what he had said and undid all he had done. Some 1,500 of the rioters were tried, mostly in Essex, with great rigour and executed with great cruelty. Many of them were hanged on gibbets and left there as a terror to the country people and because their miserable friends took some of the bodies down to bury, the king ordered the rest to be chained up, which was the beginning of the barbarous custom of hanging in chains. The king's falsehood in this business makes such a pitiful figure that I think Mart Tyler appears in history as, beyond comparison, the truer and more respectable man of the two. Richard was now 16 years of age and married Anne of Bohemia, an excellent princess, who was called the Good Queen Anne. She deserved a better husband, for the king had been fawned and fluttered into a treacherous, wasteful, dissolute, bad young man. There were two popes at this time, as if one were not enough, and their quarrels involved Europe in a great deal of trouble. Scotland was still troublesome too, and at home there was much jealousy and distrust, and plotting and counterplotting, because the king feared the ambition of his relations, and particularly of his uncle, the Duke of Lancaster, and the Duke had his party against the king, and the king had his party against the Duke. Nor were these home troubles lessened when the Duke went to Castile to urge his claim to the crown of that kingdom. For then the Duke of Gloucester, another of Richard's uncles, opposed him and influenced the Parliament to demand the dismissal of the king's favourite ministers. The king said in reply that he would not for such men dismiss the meanest servant in his kitchen. But it had begun to signify little what a king said when a parliament was determined. So Richard was at last obliged to give way and to agree to another government of the kingdom, under a commission of forty nobles for a year. His uncle of Gloucester was at the head of this commission, and in fact appointed 
everybody composing it. Having done all this, the king declared as soon as he saw an opportunity that he had never meant to do it, and that it was all illegal. And he got the judges secretly to sign a declaration to that effect. The secret oozed out directly and was carried to the Duke of Gloucester. The Duke of Gloucester, at the head of 40,000 men, met the king on his entering into London to enforce his authority. The king was helpless against them. His favourites and ministers were impeached and were mercilessly executed. Among them were two men whom the people regarded with very different feelings. One, Robert Tressilian, Chief Justice, who was hated for having made what was called the bloody circuit to try the rioters. The other, Sir Simon Burley, an honourable knight who had been the dear friend of the Black Prince and the governor and guardian of the king. For this gentleman's life, the good queen even begged of Gloucester on her knees. But Gloucester, with or without reason, feared and hated him, and replied that if she valued her husband's crown, she had better beg no more. All this was done under what was called by some the wonderful, and by others, with better reason, the merciless Parliament. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.